No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. What begins as a letter to a long-lost childhood friend leads to meditation on the fragments of memory that linger after a person passes through our lives at a crucial stage. Kicking off the second half of our special TLR team-up at the AWP conference in Washington, D.C., Jesse Vale Ophieri reads, Unsilencing, or I Am Sorry for Not Writing Sooner, written by Minna Zalman Proctor. Dear precious orchid that bends in the breeze, I am very sorry for not writing sooner. That's the way I begin all of my emails and letters, with an apology, either implicit or outright, Implicit, I guess, is less boring in an apologetic age, which means I've failed already. In your case, it's clamorous, decades of silence. So sorry. So long, indeed, that I have no idea what kind of tone to take. Do I assume you've aged as I have? Or that you're still 12? And what to do with the fact that for the life of me, I can't remember what it was like to talk to you? to have you central to my orbit. I just know that you were. I was trying to describe you to my friend Emily the other day. We were on a walk and talking in the way that friends who like each other's company talk, as opposed to friends who are lovers and just know each other too well, or as opposed to new friends or possibly enjoying themselves frenetically, high-pitched and taut-shouldered, but who can't stop wishing they were alone because really, that would be easier. The way friends who like each other talk in bursts or long, alternating monologues with interruptions allowed for, look at that thatch roof, and do you think it's soggy in their dining room? And then just as easy as pie, where was I? The point of return being incurably interesting to you and your friend, and likely wrist-slittingly boring for anyone else, which is why you've ended up friends in the first place. But I can't remember how we talked. I remember how I talked with my best friend in first grade, especially when we'd sit on the green grass of her front lawn, just off the street, but under all the trees she had in her front yard, who has trees in their front yard? Kimberly did. It was a good halfway point between our two houses, and either of our mothers could see us if they looked out the front door. We liked word jokes and dares, and both had the most exaggerated Texas twangs. Okay, you look at me, mean, and then I'll look at you, mean, and whoever is meanest wins. <laughs> I remember how I talked with my best friend from 11th grade, Christine, the friend who I guess in most respects replaced you, though at a certain point in 9th grade I don't think I would have imagined that to be possible. When I talked with her about things that thrilled us, Fidel Castro, social justice, and the cure, 
We had such a rapid fire urgency, such emphasis when we landed our sentences that we used to say that we were talking German in English. When I arrived in England to visit her at college for Christmas vacation in 1989, we spent the whole bus ride from Heathrow to Oxford passionately discussing Bush's invasion of Panama, lamenting especially the number of casualties reported in the English press versus the American. We realized starkly over the course of the hour that America had been lied to. Ceausescu had fallen too while I had been in the air, deposed, tried, and executed. We talked feverishly in our German-style American. And when we climbed down off the bus in Oxford, the driver said to us, you two are good friends. <laughs> I wonder if it was the turbulence of our brains at that age that clouds my memory of how you and I talk together. Some research reveals to me that synapses are constantly generated at a high rate in the developing prepubescent brain. Newly generated glutamatergic synapses lack functional receptor-mediated transmission, and that makes them silent. Most silent synapses are eliminated during the developmental years, but some are specifically selected for unsilencing by correlated pre- and postsynaptic activity as the first step in a process that leads to stabilization of the synapse. <laughs> I think there may be a clue here. Thoughts are formed but not completed because the brain is still learning how to make ends meet. Or rather, still growing the material that makes the ends meet. Remarkable new studies suggest, however, that those half-formed thoughts are silenced rather than deleted. And that over the course of our brain's life, it can revisit the silent places. Not to rebuild or even to at long last complete the synapses, but rather to pass through them, like a visit. And so, precious orchid, I remember what we ate. Ramen noodles that we bought for a quarter from the grocery store on the way home from school and doctored up Chinese style with sesame oil, hot chili oil, and scallions. Sometimes your father would make us fried rice with egg, also doctored with chili, and one time, we spent the whole afternoon sitting in the little yard right outside your kitchen window folding dumplings. They were for a special occasion, which one I can't remember. But we ate some immediately that afternoon. I was enchanted by the exotic gesture of folding the noodles, such an intricate ritual laid out on a card table in a grassless backyard for cooking and eating in a small dingy kitchen on a Wednesday afternoon, two 11-year-old girls and a professor of ancient Chinese. I'd always been the exotic one before you arrived. I'd lived in so many different states by the time we got to sixth grade, and my parents were divorced, and I lived with just my mother. You'd lived in countries. Your parents weren't divorced, they were just not arranged in a way I understood. There was a mother in Shanghai who was a student who didn't show up for years, though her absence was conspicuous and awkward. There was a real father in Wales who ran concert tours, Pink Floyd, Nick Cave, Flock of Seagulls, and was apparently brilliant, though you seldom saw him or heard from him. Maybe it was all the cocaine that he did with the rock stars. You had red hair, Asian features, and an English accent. In seventh grade, your father cut your hair with a bowl, 
You wore Chinese factory pants and boyish concert t-shirts that band members had signed. Over summer vacation, my sister and I would race across the six-lane highway to the mall, and I'd stand at the window of the head shop longing over one of the black t-shirts with band logos on them, thinking that then I could be like you. For the first two years after you came to our school, no one but me understood your magic. And I guarded it fiercely. We lived two backyards away from each other and spent all our time together. We played make-believe in the field next to my house, adventure up in the woods by the water tower. With my sister, we'd draft long plays about princesses based loosely on fairy tales. You always commanded the best role because of your English accent. And we always, to my continuing shame, made my little sister play the boys. <laughs> we subjected our parents to the performances, which depended heavily on gauze fabric scraps and an old-fashioned window seat, upholstered in a weary beige with gold jacquard threads. It had big rolled arms and no back and most of our princesses had to spend significant portions of their scenes sitting on the window seat and looking achingly out the bedroom window toward the fluttering leaves of the New England maple trees. You were a master of self-invention and left me in the dust. You could hold your long, delicate fingers up in a stylized gesture and recite your long Chinese Welsh name in your unflappable English accent, finishing fancifully with the English translation, precious orchid that bends in the breeze. You chopped off your coppery little girl braids and started wearing your hair black, black black as you could make it, and spiked straight up and tendrilling down. You wore black formal tails and skin-tight black jeans. Your boots were pointy and studded and buckled. You flew from little girl to iconoclast, dark, sexual, manipulative, always one beat ahead of the rest, so fast no one could see your wings moving. I mean, I saw your wings move because I knew where to look, because I knew it's so much more possible to discern the trajectory if you know the launch point, if you're still standing there. 10th grade was drama club. That's all it was. That's all anything had been since the two of us started high school. We lived like rats in the auditorium from the first bell to the last, cutting class, smoking clove cigarettes, trying to figure out who we were. It was our Plato's cave, and we were far from emerging into the light, but so very caught up in the shadows. Our director was on a sabbatical from Broadway and selected the grotesque pageant Spoon River Anthology for us to mount and then take into state competition. All actors had two monologues to perform we were all ghosts looking back on our lives, most of us tragic. It was the most exquisite farce. All of us teenagers, 
barely connected as it was to real life, consumed by our own fantastical conceptions of ourselves, specters enacting shadows. I played Minerva, the village poetess, crippled and misunderstood. And I played Pauline Barrett, a middle-aged woman who had survived breast cancer because of a mastectomy only to kill herself because in grief over her mangled body. One should be all dead when one is half dead, nor ever mock life, nor ever cheat love. She was weak, she mocked survival. She couldn't possibly understand what survival meant to a teenage girl like me. The director pleaded with me for weeks. Pauline had to cry. Pauline had to be piteous. If she can't cry, then her voice must catch. I despised Pauline Barrett on principle. I played her like a robot. And the play was a success nonetheless. We advanced in the rankings. We traveled to state finals. Then it became clear at the last moment that we would never win because of me and my emotional standoff with my character. And so you stepped in. You told the director you could cry, and you did. You were beautiful, dark, manipulative, piteous. In an old woolly shawl, your piercings and jet black hair, shaved and spiked. When you came off stage, you brushed past me and bragged that it was the shot of vodka you drank in the wings just before stepping out into the lights. That was it. You'd had a plan and it worked. I would forever then be the crippled poetess and you were forever then gone. Just a silence I was passing through. I'm not sure it was even worth writing. Switching it up, Jesse's true life tale unfolds from a child's eye view of divorce and dating. It is an intimate examination of dangers real and perceived, and the way kids choose to be both seen and heard. Here is Jesse Vale Ophieri's story, Intruders, read by Minna Zalman Proctor. Break-ins were not unusual in the Philadelphia of my childhood. One night when I was a few months old, my parents were coming home and heard a shout as they unlocked the front door. It was from their roommate, Judy. Dennis, Judy called, get your gun. Mom sprinted with me around the side of the house and crouched low by the back siding. Dad charged inside for his Winchester. There was a crash and splintering glass. The intruder leaped through a window, sailing over Mom and me and fleeing through the backyard. After Mom and Dad's separation, when I was less than a year old, there was a procession of love interests to contend with. Mom later darkly confessed that the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and the first decade of the 21st century had really swallowed her up. <laughs> Many of the romantic entanglements she later so regretted happened off stage, as it were, when I was at Dad's. But certain mainstays were woven into the fabric of our life. There was Leonard, a friend, whose bedroom mom would disappear into, leaving me in the living room to watch the love boat. 
Leonard had curly hair like Richard Simmons, and Mom allowed me to refer to him in private as Leonard. <laughs> there was a soft-spoken photographer, Jack, russet complexioned and intimidating, and another man, a New Yorker, who gave me a tour of his fancy loft before he and Mom excused themselves, leaving me to explore his sleepy, boring living space. Dad had other girlfriends before he married Jane. But I remember them only as shadows and doorways. Jane was a hairdresser with a perfume collection that took up two whole shelves. I wasn't allowed to touch the fancy bottles and would steadily force the air from my nostrils each time I walked past, lest a tendril of scent find its way inside my pristine nasal cavity. Jane hosted a birthday party for me and entertained the crowd of four-year-olds with a game of pin the tail and the donkey. She gave me a yellow book she'd made in art school about a kangaroo and took me to visit her mother. Jane delighted in instructing small children that infuriated me by always seeming to misjudge the things I knew. Little things irritated her and she was quick to shut me down with pithy statements of fact. You're just a kid, she'd say, leaving me with my mouth hanging open. Then, when I was a teenager, hey, your shit stinks too. I feared a strange face leering through my bedroom window, but I also got scared in the daytime. As I recall it, much, much of my childhood was spent wandering around, picking up and putting down my parents' possessions, like some secret might be transmitted through my fingertips. Mom left her dream journal by the side of the bed, and I regularly perused its pages after school, when she was still at medical school, and I'd let myself in with my key, or, having forgotten my key, get a foothold on the ledge in the side yard and shimmy messily up through a window. Mom's analyst had told her to jot her dreams down first thing every morning, and these scribblings confirmed my suspicion that only a man, never a daughter, could be enough to make mom happy. Sex, it seemed, was the one thing adults could not do without. Dad lived in another part of the city. When I was at his house, which wasn't a house per se, but an old converted warehouse, he'd be, he'd be working in his studio by day, which required a walk down a gritty, pitch black stairwell to get to, and where he would gaze abstractedly at his canvases and ask me what I thought, Expecting an articulate answer, I'd give one in my pipsqueak voice, and he'd nod, and then recede back into a prolonged, staring silence. When I wanted to spy, I'd pull aside the floor, the floor grate in Dad's bedroom, a rectangular metal grill that covered a hole ample enough for a small person to easily fall through, and stare down at my miniaturized father as he paced with a paintbrush in hand and grunted assurances to himself, fiddling occasionally with the knobs of his transistor radio cassette player. Once, I felt my way down the stairwell to visit with Dad in his studio, and at the bottom of the stairs, where they curved, a naked woman came into view. Her eyes met mine as I poked my head around the doorway. I think we have a visitor, she said with a laughing look at Dad. 
Jess, is that you? Dad said. Come in. The woman's buttocks sat firmly on a stool. Her brown hair hung above small breasts and a quantity of pale, freckled skin. Her knees were loose, her toes propped on a rung. Dad stared, his head tilted. He made a mark on his canvas. I didn't move from where I stood and didn't want to say anything to Dad in front of that lady. Eventually, I turned and felt my way back upstairs. One morning, I woke early, filled with the conviction that there was candy hidden throughout the house. It was my first ever Easter at Dad's. While Dad and Jane slept beyond a closed door I was forbidden to open, I searched under every surface, inside every cabinet, under every chair. The vast space of the loft leered and swelled with creaking silence. Later that day, Mom picked me up as schedule. She had organized a backyard egg hunt. I found chocolate and candy in the tall grasses, a giant hollow rabbit in yellow foil. When I was in second grade, Mom invited her boyfriend David to move in with us. Mom has since told me that David was a strikingly handsome sociopath. I recall a tall, dark, curly-haired man with a prominent brow. He was a psychoanalyst. His shiny black piano accompanied him into our house, sleepily residing in a dim nook. Piano was a serious hobby of his. I don't remember if I heard him playing the same song for hours, days, and weeks, or if I remember Mom telling me about it. One weekend, I returned to Mom's after being at my dad's to find a big ragged hole in the lower panel of the wood bathroom door and Mom walking gingerly. She had fallen in the tub, she said, hovering her palms near her backside. She had fallen so hard the impact had cracked her tailbone. The school I attended in Bluebell, Pennsylvania had a 30-acre campus, and we did wonderful things there like make pottery and ice skate on the frozen lake and learn French. And it was perhaps due to that French class that when mom brought home a golden retriever, we named him Beauregard. <laughs> a name that I, a French scholar, could pronounce with the proper panache. Though he usually went by the more modest Bobo. When I returned home to mom's house, there Bobo would be. There are pictures of me draped over and hugging the panting dog. Bobo and I communed often and at length. He seemed to like me, even though I sometimes made him lie still while I pulled back his penis to reveal a shiny, pointed red stick inside. David was another story. One morning, I didn't finish my cereal, and David picked me up by the back of my nightgown and threw me up some stairs. Go to your room! I decided I'd never do what David said, even if he threw me to Mars. I remember sitting in the carport during the David epic and crushing the little red buds that were red all the way through and moved in random patterns around the warm concrete. Once I brought home a stray dog and her puppies, and Mom let me keep them in a fenced-off part of the yard until they had to leave for reasons that weren't clear to me at the time. Sometimes I'd take Bobo for walks, and he'd strain and pull at the leash, and I'd get mad at him. One day I took him for a walk and the leash dug into my palm and I had to lean back on my heels to keep from getting dragged down the block 
No, Bobo, no, I yelled, and struck the quivering dog. I hit him again to make him understand who was boss. No, Bobo, I hit him again. The car pulled up and an angry man shouted, I'll call the police and they'll take that dog away. This is my dog. I felt my face as hot as an ember in the fire pit at the frozen lake. People sat in idling vehicles and the man lunged in his seat as though he might jump out of his car. If you don't stop abusing him, they'll take him away. No, they won't. It scared me to have my rottenness on display. Divorce was hard on kids. All talk shows said so. But that hardly made me feel better about my misshapen inner self. My parents seemed, to my eye, cut a finer cloth. They, unlike me, responded to real problems. There was that time before I was born that they came home to discover that an intruder was raping Judy. Or maybe it wasn't Judy, but some other roommate. The rapist burst out of the bedroom and Dad fired his Winchester, lighting up the hall like fireworks. And the time after the divorce, when Dad lived in his studio for a while, he'd roll out a sleeping bag near his easel and paints, and one night woke up to the sound of a rattling window casing. The trespasser was halfway through the window when he locked eyes with Dad, who already had one hand on his Winchester. Dad climbed naked out of his sleeping bag and pursued the intruder out the window, chasing him up Lancaster Avenue. My exploits were pathetic in contrast. There was the humiliating 7-Eleven incident when a wiry little girl sidled up to me as I left the store. What's your name? She said. What you got in that bag? Then she snatched my bag of candy and zigzagged off, running backwards to see if I would chase her. I was proud of my speed and fainted in her direction, but she took off. I was pretty sure I could catch her, but my stomach churned at the thought of chasing a little girl. At home, I told Dad the girl had ambushed me and then run off with a huge head start. And, I lied, she stole a dollar. The policeman arrived within minutes of Dad's call to 911 and made us get in his squad car. He drove us to where he thought the girl lived. We cruised through Mantua, Dad and the policeman dialoguing with big men's voices, and I shrank against the springy vinyl back seat like a bouncy flea. <laughs> you tell me if I've got the right kid, the policeman said. I think I know who it is. We pulled up in front of some rundown row houses with astroturf front porches, a bunch of children playing in the street. The policeman got out and came back a minute later with the girl. Her face smeared with chocolate my half-eaten Snickers bar in one hand. She bit into it, her jaw working. I didn't take no dollar, she said through a full mouth. Yes, you did, the policeman said. Where is it? I didn't take no dollar. The policeman sighed and shook his head. Don't let me catch you again. And the girl looked vacantly beyond his beefy hand, which was planted on her well-muscled little shoulder. Yes, sir. My fear of a rapt face framed by my window continued to haunt me, but I never mentioned it to anyone. More than anything, I loved spending time with my parents alone. One night, Dad took me to a party. The apartment was packed with people, but the bedroom door was shut. For once, it was just Dad and me. 
some miracle had jettisoned Dane. <laughs> but he quickly disappeared inside the crowd of tinkling glasses and burning cigarettes, and I wandered around touching things. When it was late and I thought we should leave soon, I saw Dad kissing a lady for a long time in the hall. He didn't see me, and I didn't want him to. I pushed open the closed bedroom door. It was quieter in there, and whoever's room it was had lots of interesting things. I picked things up, then I put them down. Little objects, photographs, jewelry. A ring with a cloudy green stone had 14K carved inside its thick golden band. The ring was small but heavy. I put it inside my pocket and went back into the hall. Dad was finally ready to go. I lay awake thinking of the face at my window and of the stolen ring burning its smooth heft into a pristine inner part of me. The ring haunted me. I'd sullied something that could never be clean again. Slowly, it dawned on me that there might be an escape. I asked to go outside and walked until I could no longer see the house. I remember the stinky crush of ginkgo berries and the litter of fan-shaped leaves beneath my feet. I dawdled around the until the sidewalk was clear of people. My arm was good and strong from many sessions of throwing the hardball of Dad. The blue sky swallowed the ring when I threw it, the strongest, straightest throw I had. Something inside of me lifted. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.